Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Hey guys and gals, welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast brought to you by Arrowhead Land Company. Here you will be educated, entertained, and equipped to get more out of your outdoor experience. So hold on tight because here we go. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, John Hutspeth, and it seems like it has been eternity since I have sat down at my home computer with my actual microphone and recorded a podcast. Um, man, just going back, I so I took some time off. I went to Nebraska. My wife and I went to Gulf Shores, uh, and so I did some like pre-recording in order to do those trips. And then it just so happened that Dan and Josh, who you know are the guys on the Sportsman's Empire who actually put out these episodes to y'all, they were going to take some time off to do some turkey hunting. Uh, and so I ended up recording two episodes with my mobile setup while I was on vacation. And those are the last two episodes y'all have heard. So I apologize if the quality wasn't quite up to par. Um, but I'm finally back. I'm sitting at home uh, here in front of my computer with my actual real microphone ready to record a podcast for you guys. And so super jazzed. Um, man, it just, it, I, I feel like I've done so much since I talked to y'all last. And I'm not even going to talk about that much of it this week. So, um, man, since, I, since I've been sitting in front of this computer, uh, I obviously went to Nebraska. I already told that story. Um, I got food poison on my vacation. I don't think I've talked about that yet. Um, I've hunted some Oklahoma public land for turkeys. That's going to be a, a kind of short but interesting story. And then this last weekend, uh, I was up uh, with the Oklahoma Outdoor Outreach Foundation helping some disabled hunters do some turkey hunting. And guys, let me tell you, that was an amazing experience that everyone, everyone listening to this needs to volunteer or take part in in some way, shape, or form in the future. Um, And I'm going to be talking about that on a later episode, but I think I decided because this coming weekend I'm going to be headed to West Texas to do some turkey hunting out there, my buddy's place, that I'm going to save all those stories that I just talked about uh, for probably next week's episode um, and just do one big giant kind of all-encompassing turkey season episode. And so I think that's my plan for next week. Plus, I have had this uh, this amazing interview in my back pocket for, gosh, almost two weeks now that I've just been wanting to get out to you guys. And so that's what we're going to talk about this week. Um, I was fortunate enough, I reached out to Mr. Lindsey Thomas Jr. with the National Deer Association uh, because in part of their, they send out uh, emails and stuff that have articles and information of what's going on in the hunting world. And Lindsay had written an article that I found super interesting, and uh, it was on rutcations. And Lindsay, the last two years, um, his position with work had kind of changed a little bit, and for the first time in his life, he was able to take a full-on, you know, week-long rutcation. And that's something that I've never actually done. Um, you know, I work a full-time job, I have a family, and usually I save my vacation time for, you know, a western hunt or like this year I'm hoping to go to Iowa and so I'm saving my vacation for that. And so I've never just had like a dedicated week um, to just, you know, stay on our property and hunt it. Um, and I've always kind of dreamed of it. I hear people talking about it. But I've often wondered kind of, basically if it would be good or not to just put that much pressure on my property. And that is exactly what Lindsay wrote an article about. And that's what he's coming on to talk about. And so it was incredibly interesting. So whether you're, you know, no matter what side of the coin you're on, whether you take a rutcation every year, whether you're like me and have always dreamed of taking a rutcation, I think there's going to be something here for you to take away and learn from. So again, I would encourage everybody to listen to this 
take some notes and and kind of come up with your own opinion on what you think you should do. So uh, we also kind of get a little bonus because actually I had already reached out to Lindsay about coming on the show and he had said yes. And they put out another article about some some newer wild hog research that uh, a lady in Georgia did. Um, and it was some very eye-opening research. Um, and most likely, if you're listening to this, it's probably going to be eye-opening in a bad way. Uh, that's kind of how I saw it. Um, they just basically they did some studies on ho- wild hog reproduction. And I don't want to ruin it here in the intro, but it is just mind-blowing how efficient wild hogs are at reproducing. So, so yeah, we covered two things. And then, oh, I almost forgot. Um, when Lindsay and I were talking before I hit record, he actually asked me if he could bring some stuff up, and and I allowed him to. And uh, it was some really great, awesome information um, that he had learned at uh, a deer conference about the state of Oklahoma and the state of our deer herd. And you know, I've been doing a lot of these episodes recently on you know all the legislation talk. Um, you know, all the one buck versus two buck and non-resident hunters and, you know, just all the stuff that we've been covering a ton lately. And I, what Lindsay brought up was super encouraging to me. And again, I don't want to ruin it because, you know, it's his thing and it, it's, it would be much better coming from him. Uh, but it was just very, very encouraging the state of not only the Oklahoma deer herd, but the Oklahoma hunting culture really is kind of what was the best part of about all this. So so yeah, three big things on this episode. We start off with the kind of the, the state of the union for Oklahoma deer hunting, um, and then we move into the ruckation, and then we followed up with the hog research. So lots of good stuff in this episode. Um, I was super thankful for Lindsay for coming on and talking about all this stuff. He is a wealth of knowledge. I would highly encourage you guys to uh, look up the National Deer Association, follow their stuff, um, look up Lindsay. He puts out tons of articles um, on their website and other places. So yes, just a super good informative episode we have ahead of us. And so that is probably going to do it. Like I said, next week, we're going to get more into my, my craziness that's been the last couple weeks. Um, and hopefully the craziness that is going to be this coming weekend, um, with the turkey hunt that I'm going to do. So Yeah, once again, that's it. That's it for me. I hope you guys enjoyed this intro. I really think y'all are going to enjoy this episode, and I would love to hear any and all feedback you have after listening to this episode. So hit me up on Instagram. That's definitely the best way. You can also message me on Facebook. Not quite as active on there. And I don't think I've thrown up my email in quite a while. So, okay, outdoors podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget the S on outdoors. And that will do it. For, I think that's the third time I've said that now. So, all right, that's enough of me. Here's my interview with Lindsey Thomas Jr. After a quick word from our partners right this second. When the nasty spring storms have me trapped inside, one of my favorite activities is to get online and browse the local land listings. If you've been checking out some land or maybe have a piece you've been wanting to sell to put a little cash in your pocket, Give the hardworking agents at Arrowhead Land Company a call. The knowledgeable agents will work hard to either find the parcel that fits your needs or find the right buyer that fits your parcel. They have agents all over Oklahoma and are quickly adding more states to their resume every day. So give Arrowhead Land Company a call and let them go to work for you. There is truly no place like the great outdoors in Oklahoma. When you're out in the wild, you want your wireless devices to work. Unlike other carriers, Bravado Wireless believes that coverage in rural areas is important so that you stay connected. With competitively priced plans and coverage where you need it, the mission of Bravado Wireless is to keep you connected no matter where you are. Visit bravadowireless.com or check them out at one of their retail locations. Bravado Wireless, the power of connection. Hey everybody, welcome to today's show and today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Lindsey Thomas. How are you doing, Lindsey? I'm doing great, John. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing so good and uh, man, I've been looking forward to this one for a while ever since I reached out to you and 
and shockingly you reached back out to me and said you were willing to do it and so i'm i'm on cloud nine and and ready to go so but before we get into all the exciting things we have coming up here uh just in case somebody's listening to this uh why don't you give us a little, quick little introduction of, of who you are yeah thanks i'm the chief communications officer for the national deer association which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to ensuring the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. Um, I've been with the organization about 20 years. Uh, previously, we were known as the Quality Deer Management Association. And then in 2020, we merged with the Deer Alliance to form the National Deer Association, basically just putting what the two organizations did best under one roof. Um, so I'm, you know, for the organization, I run our communications with my communications team. We do the website, uh, email communication, social media, magazine, uh, video communications, all of that is uh, comes under my management. Um, so that's who I am and what I do. I live in, in Georgia um, and I'm a native Georgian. So uh, happy that I, I have not had to leave my home state to, uh, <laughs> to you know, pursue this career. And, uh, but uh, it's been fun getting to know deer hunters and, and deer management all across the country outside of Georgia in my role here with NDA. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And for all those listening, you know, if there's a good chance if you identify as a hunter, call yourself a, a hunter or an outdoorsman that at some point you've probably either read, seen, watched something that, uh, you know, Lindsay has done or, you know, a very minimum, the National Deer Association has done. So, uh, yeah, I, I love following you guys. I love the work that y'all do. Um, I, I'm really excited to talk about uh, an article that you recently wrote. That is kind of why I reached out to you. But but before we even get into that, uh, you you asked if you could uh, interject some some information that you learned here recently and uh, about the state of Oklahoma and our deer herd. And so I'm, I'm all ears and I'd, I'd love to hear what you had to say yeah it just when you reached out to me i thought okay we got to talk about this because um i go to the southeast deer study group meeting every year and uh it's a gathering of deer professionals and managers and researchers from around the country and um at the most recent one dallas barber who's with the uh your your oklahoma department of wildlife Con conservation um got up and gave a kind of an update on how things were going in oklahoma he showed a, a pie chart that was really, really fascinating. Going all the way back to 1989 in Oklahoma, in your buck harvest there in 1989, breaking it down by age class. In 89, 66% of your buck harvest was yearling bucks, one and a half years old, 66%. And then he compared that to the most recent year with all the data in, and that was 2021. Do you know what your yearling buck harvest rate was in 2021 in Oklahoma? I'm not off the top of my head, but I'm guessing it's pretty low. It was 11%. Mm. So whereas two-thirds of all the bucks killed in Oklahoma in 1989 were yearlings, now it was, in 2021, it was one out of 10. Mm. And the amazing thing, looking at these pie charts that he showed, is to see how that affected harvest of bucks three and a half and older, you know, where before mm -hmm. only about 10% of your entire buck harvest was three and a half years or older. You know, you're talking about now almost 75% of your, your buck harvest is three and a half or older. Mm. Um, so pretty amazing. And then even more, you know, amazing in my mind is the fact that y'all don't have any, you know, there's no statewide antler regulation in Oklahoma. There's no mandatory buck restriction. It's, mm -hmm. that's entirely the, the change in your buck harvest is in, has been entirely voluntary on the part of Oklahoma hunters and, and through efforts of the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation to educate hunters about the value of letting young bucks grow and, you know, taking a doe, th those kind of campaigns. So pretty amazing what y'all have accomplished. And I know, you know, some people will say, well, yeah, but that, that means you're killing fewer bucks. Actually, no, y'all kill a lot more bucks now than you ever have. Mm -hmm. Um and yet the percentage of older bucks is so much higher. So literally in real numbers, you're killing more mature bucks in real numbers than you ever have today in Oklahoma. So that's that's a, a huge feat and congrats to, to you and every other hunter in Oklahoma. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic news. And, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting uh, legislation that's been going on in our state recently um lots of talk and so i've i've been pretty involved in all that and and heard lots of 
you know, concerns from listeners and, and beyond. And, uh, but, you know, one of the main things I hear is people, you know, people are always comparing states to Iowa, you know, like, I, you know, we want to be Iowa and, and for good reason. Um, but, you know, a big argument that I always hear is, is Oklahoma needs to become a one buck state. You know, we'd have more trophy, we'd have older bucks and all this stuff. And, and I just always, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that because like you just said, you know, I think we have great age structure here. I think we have great trophy potential. Um, and a lot of people like to, you know, kind of forget that Iowa is not a one buck state. I always love to point that out. You know, landowners can get, I, I believe up to three tags, you know, if you have enough land and everything. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's encouraging to hear all that good news with all the stuff that's been going on. Um, so yeah, I absolutely win for Oklahoma. Yeah, you've got it great there. And, and the fact that you've achieved that through voluntary practices is is really, really good. You 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 know, y'all are in good shape. You almost don't need to to mandate it or force it any further. I mean, mm-hmm. to have, you know, I mean, what, like I said, almost 75% of your buck harvest now is three and a half or older. That's mm-hmm. incredible. So mm-hmm. y'all are in great shape. Good. Good to hear it. Glad, glad you interjected that. So. Awesome. Well, Lindsay, uh, like I said, let's let's get into the main reason I, I reached out to you. So um, I was going through my emails and saw an email from the National Deer Association and clicked on it. And, and one article in particular stuck out to me. And, and I'll get into why in just a second. But it was an article you wrote about ruckations. And for those listening, you know, that's just kind of a funny term we have for basically taking a, a you know, a long vacation, taking time off work. Uh, to just dedicate to hunting, you know, a lot of, for a lot of people, it's a whole week, you know, five to seven days somewhere in there. And, and one of the reasons it kind of stuck out to me is because just with the, the way kind of I hunt and my lifestyle, my job, I've, I've never really been able to take a ruckation. Um, a lot of times if I do take vacation time for hunting, uh, it's, you know, a Western hunt and out of state hunt. And I've kind of saved all my vac- vacation time for that. Um, you know, the last couple of years I've gotten to where I'll take like a Friday off and do like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning type thing. And, and I, and I've been fairly successful with that kind of just sticking with the, the weekend warrior type mentality. Um, but again, you know, I think everybody always would love to hunt more and love a whole week to just dedicate to whitetail hunting. And, and so I clicked on your article and read through it. And, uh, and it was just very interesting of you kind of saying that, you know, I don't want to give it away too much, but just you, you weren't sure that the whole rutcation plan was a good one. Um, and so I'll, I'll quit talking now and kind of turn it over to you, but yeah, I'd love to just kind of hear your rundown, your, your story, kind of a synopsis of the article and, uh, and your thoughts on the whole rutcation. Yeah. So I'm, I appreciate you being interested in the article and, and glad you liked it. You know, it's been a fascinating, uh, learning experience for me and that's why I wanted to write it. Um, like you until recently, I never really could, um, take conveniently take a long vacation during the rut and go hunt. Um, for one thing, I live four hours from my family's land in Southeast Georgia. Uh, and that's where I do most of my deer hunting. Um, for another thing, you know, I've I've got three kids and, and only recently were they all three, you know, had a driver's license and old enough to where I could go off and, you know, leave my wife at home for a week and not be leaving her with too much of a burden in terms of raising young kids by, you know, by herself. Um, Plus at work, we are now fully remote. We all work from home. So, you know, it made it possible for me to take a week, go stay at the, my family's farm for a full week, you know, do some work during the middle of the day. um, But also, you know, hunt morning and afternoon for, five, six, seven days or more. I was, you know, when it finally worked out, I'd always wanted to do that. So I thought it was great. And so I did that for the past two seasons. Both times it was a total failure. And I just got to thinking about why, why isn't this working? You'd think, you know, hey, if I can spend seven days just hunkered down doing nothing but focused on killing a buck during the rut, why didn't it work? And um, I came back to the science that we cover and that I write a lot about. Uh, uh, that looks at hunting pressure and deer movements and bug behaviors and how this all works and realize that, you know, the fact is the odds are stacked against you when it comes to hunting for that long and that intensively on a, on a property of the size that I hunt and probably others that are even, you know, larger. Um, and that's, so that's what the article was about was, you know, basically accepting the fact that rutcations may be designed to fail. And that for someone, you know, like 
you and like me before I tried this, who were sort of limited to weekends, that actually may be the ideal way is sort of a hit and run. You, you hunt for a day or two uh, and then you, you leave the woods and you let things cool down. And from a pressure standpoint, it gives you an advantage when you return. So that's what the article was about, was sort of pulling in all the science I looked at um, that really justified what I was seeing that a rutcation, if you don't uh, take a lot of things into consideration, can actually be more challenging than just, you know, a, being a weekend warrior and getting to hunt a day or two and having to go back home. So uh, now I'll add that I haven't given up on it. And I said that in the article that I was going to give it one more shot. Mm-hmm. But that's what the article looked at was the reasons why I thought my rutcations had failed and what I plan to do to try one more time to try to make it work. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about some of those uh, some of those failure failures. Um, you know, you already mentioned pressure being a big one, obviously, and and you even had some some numbers from uh, a study in your article talking about you know kind of how deer react to hunter pressure and and how much time it takes them to calm down afterwards. And you know, I think I've been guilty of thinking, uh, you know, if it's rut and, you know, deer really moving, they don't care as much about the wind. If I just sit in this one tree, you know, if I just sit in this pinch for five days in a row that eventually, you know, I'm going to kill a big buck. Um, but you know, it sounds like that's definitely not the case of, of what you were finding after spending all this time on your farm. No, it's not. And the science backs that up too. It's not that after sitting there in one place for five days, you have zero chance of seeing a deer. Some people still do, um, you know, kill deer under those circumstances and, you know, hunt their same favorite stand every weekend all year long and, and sometimes still kill deer. It's not that you have zero chance, but there's no doubt that the longer you hunt in an area uh, without, you know, a break, the longer you sit in the same stand or hunt the same area repeatedly, the more you're driving down your odds of seeing deer, because again, science makes it clear, they react quickly to our pressure. And this is coming from studies where, like the one I mentioned, where, you know, they're tracking GPS collared bucks on public and private land, watching their movements, comparing that to hunting pressure and hunter activities and determining, you know, like the study I mentioned, the one that was uh, Kevin Wiskirchen uh, when he was at Auburn University tracked uh, 32 deer, bucks and does on public and private land and found that, you know, after a Saturday, which is typically when we all pile, most of us pile into the woods to hunt on Saturdays, just because it's when many of us can go, even those of us that, you know, can't get off work during the week, that's when we go Saturdays. So after that peak of pressure on Saturdays, deer movement dropped significantly by Sunday. So they were rapidly within 24 hours, you know, adjusting movements based on that surge of pressure. And he saw that deer decreased their overall movement rate by 18% right after those Saturday peaks in hunting pressure, that they're, they're, uh, the probability of them moving um, during daylight hours decreased by 25%. And that what he called net displacement, uh, that decreased by 31%. And what that basically means is just simply a deer, you know, moving around and exploring. In other words, if that decreases, it means a deer is holding closer to small areas and exploring less. Mm-hmm. So no doubt, immediately after peaks in hunting pressure, deer are responding to that and they do it quickly. And, you know, what he saw was that even though hunting pressure dropped on Mondays, he did not see normal deer m- movement return among the deer he was tracking until Thursdays. So it takes a couple of days. And, you know, there was another study done, uh, another Auburn University study done by Clint McCoy uh, when he was a student at Auburn, uh, done over in uh, North Carolina. And he was on a large area also tracking a significant number of bucks, but he was also tracking deer hunter activities specific to, to stands. He had even drawn out on maps areas around each stand he was studying in which a deer, if a deer appeared in that area, that meant he was susceptible to harvest from that stand. And he, he looked at, you know, how buck movements related to that. And almost immediately after stands were hunted, bucks were less likely to enter those zones where they were at risk of being shot from those stands. And it took three, four days, even five, 
for buck activity around those stands to return to normal levels after a stand had been hunted one time. So, you know, that was what I looked at in trying to understand why it seemed to me as each day of my rutcation went on, it seemed harder and harder for me to see deer and stay on activity. And that's what I attribute it to uh, is simply, you know, the more time you spend in the woods, the more deer are picking up on cues and clues that you're there mm -hmm. and um, adjusting to stay away from you. Because, you know, let's face it, they're prey animals. We're predators. Um, they didn't last for millions of years here being dumb and being ignorant of predators. They pay attention to those cues um, and use that to avoid us. So that's what's going on here. Do you think there's any relation to, you know, maybe being like a bow hunter versus a rifle hunter, you know, that talking about the pressure, like whether you're trying to set up on, you know, a trail, a bedding area, food plot, bait site, whatever, you know, being 20 yards from that place that deer wants to be, as opposed to maybe backing off to say a hundred yards. Do you think there's a big enough kind of distance there that it makes like, you know, would the rifle hunter have an advantage because he's not getting quite as close to those areas? Or do you think just the general human presence is still enough to, to mess with it? Well, it's not like a, uh, you know, aura you're putting out there that they can detect. It, they've got to have some physical um, evidence. And of course, mostly that's going to be scent, mm -hmm. but also sounds and, you know, movements and vehicles and, and things like that. Those are the cues that clue them in, but especially your scent, whether that is, scent that drifts into, you know, on the wind uh, to an area where, where deer are using or whether it's, you know, where you walked mm -hmm. um, and they pick that up by crossing your trail where you walk. So, you know, your access routes going in and out of stands become a factor. You know, even deer that after dark, you're back in camp and fixing supper, but they're out moving around and happen to cross your access route and pick up on some scent there. Even there, you know, they're picking up clues that you're in the area that can affect this. So it's, you're right that, yeah, for a rifle hunter, it may be easier to hunt an area without actually, you know, penetrating and, and getting in there and really getting into deep into the woods with the deer, like you have to when you're bow hunting. Mm -hmm. But in the end, you can still be careful and uh, stealthy when you're bow hunting. If you really are careful about the wind, if you're really careful about your scent and your access route, it all depends on the setting and the landscape and the situation that you've got. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's one of the things I said in the article, there's no formula here that can tell you, you know, number of days and number of acres and number of hunters and, and what level of pressure is too much because it's going to vary. It's gonna vary based on property, you know, deer density, the landscape, the habitat type, the forested cover, um, a lot of things. That, that determine that. And if you are in the right situation, uh, yeah, a bow hunter can get in there and hunt a small property and not spook deer nearly as bad as others, just all depend on how you manage the evidence that you leave behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great info. And um, one other thing that you talked about that, that I really uh, related to was just kind of the wind and how the wind messed with you and and how you had all these different setups, you know, you thought you're going to be kind of prepared for anything, but every now and again, there's still that odd wind that just messes with you. And, and that relates to me a lot because for some reason in Oklahoma, you know, 98% of the time, you're either going to have a south, southeast wind, or you're going to have a north wind, at least my part of Oklahoma. So that's kind of what I set up for. But, you know, every once in a while, maybe as that front's coming in or the front's moving out, you'll have that one evening where it's a west wind or maybe an east wind or something. And, and it just throws a big, uh, you know, uh, loop into my, into my rope as far as my plan goes. Um, so that was one interesting thing that you talked about was just kind of how, you know, maybe having the same wind multiple days in a row might mess with you or that, you know, off wind might mess with, you know, kind of how you have things set up. So, um, yeah, that, yeah, was, and that you know, the, the thing that I, the, the thing that messed me up particularly this past year was, and this was kind of a key point about the wind to me, I followed what kind of the, the wisdom that I think we generally all follow, which is try to have different stands so that if the wind is bad on a particular stand, you can go to another one. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. And I had, you know, as I said in the article, something like 15 or 20 different options I could have chosen for deer stands 
of different types, ladder stands, ground blinds, lock-ons that I could have chosen from during that week of my rotation. But, but the mistake I made was that most of them were based on the predominant winds that we usually have at this property, which is usually out of the west to the north, sometimes, um, sometimes the southwest. And the problem was that whole week, it was out of the northeast to mm-hmm. east. And what happened was, even though I had so many deer stand options I could choose, because they were built around predominant winds, when it came out of a bad direction for almost the entire week, I had very few stands left that worked. I didn't have but two or three I could choose that that worked in that wind. Mm -hmm. And so that was where I was really, you know, in trouble. Mm -hmm. And that, that was what I said in the article was, Next time, what I've got to do is not just, you know, ensure that I've got a lot of stand options based on predominant wind, but to sort of game it out and ask myself, okay, next time, if the wind comes out of the east or if it comes out of the southeast or the south or southwest, you know, any compass point, Mm -hmm. you have to um, model it and say, let's assume it comes out of this direction. Where am I going and what are my options? And instead of just you know, setting up a bunch of different stand options for your predominant winds, you've really got to think about the what ifs. And if it comes out of this direction, what are my options? And that's what I'm going to do this next time. And so that if it does come out of an odd direction again, then I've still got a number of different options I can hunt. Because mm-hmm. the other thing I'm trying to do is not hunt the same stand repeatedly. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing you're, you're trying to do to avoid you know, cueing the deer in that you're there and that you're predictable. Because once you're predictable, you know, you've lost. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I need to have multiple stand options in multiple wind directions. And that's mm-hmm. that's one of the mistakes I made. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because, you know, I know there's a lot of people listening to this and they're they're right along there with you and maybe they're in the same boat where they have this one week and they're putting, you know, all their eggs in this basket. That's the only time they can get away from work and family and all this. And, and it's rut time. So, you know, it's the best time of the year to be in the woods and all that, but did it ever occur to you one, you know, morning, evening, whatever, to be like, Hey, the conditions just aren't there. Even though I can hunt, I'm just going to choose not to. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. I did sort of take a break. Uh, There was one afternoon that uh, middle of the week where I just said, you know, I just need to stay home. Mm -hmm. And, and that was a point I made in the article that, you know, there's nothing wrong. If you're going to do a rutcation that actually can help just stay out, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, catch up on your rest. You're probably tired. I mean, you know, three, four, five days in a row of of getting up early and hunting late and um, it, it wears you out. So, you know, take an afternoon, taking a morning off and, and rest, give the deer, deer a break. There's, there's nothing that can do, but help you when you return to the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned you're going to try the rutcation again. Is that more for kind of, you know, research? Is that for your own curiosity? Do you think it's still a good strategy? What's kind of your thought into, into trying it again? Yeah, I'm kind of, I just don't want to give up yet. You know, it is enjoyable. And the truth is the rut does not last long. We -hmm. look forward to it every year, you know, so much. And then the truth is the peak of it in most places is only going to be, you know, a week to two weeks or so that it's really happening. And your mature bucks are really more visible than they are any other time of year. You know, it goes through these cycles where, you start, you can watch it on your trail cameras and you start seeing, you know, some younger bucks and even, uh, you know, maybe your two and a half year olds beginning to move more, but it's, it's still not there yet. And then you hit that peak when all of a sudden, you know, for a week, week and a half, two weeks, that's the time when those three and a half year old and older bucks are going to start moving more and moving in daylight, especially it's a, it's really a narrow window. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why I don't really want to give up yet is, you know, you just don't get many days of the year mm-hmm. that those opportunities are common. And so if I can make this work, I'd like to. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, as far as your timing is your, of your rutcation, because I know there's a lot of people that, 
uh, you know, I feel like the science is getting out there slowly, but surely, but I still, every year, you know, you get on Facebook or whatever forum and, you know, ruts happening early this year, ruts happened early this year, but, um, you know, if, if somebody's looking at their work schedule and like, all right, I have to pick these five days to take a vacation, you know, what should people be looking at in order to, to pick that week out for the rotation? So, John, the science is pretty clear on this. Mm -hmm. In any location, that rut is going to be really consistent. Mm -hmm. um, now, in terms of the timing, it's going to happen right around the same. Your peak of breeding, your peak of does coming into estrus is going to be right around the same time every year. Uh, same three, four, five day peak. Mm -hmm. uh, it really does not fluctuate very much. Mm -hmm. Now, hunters believe whether it's, you know, warm weather uh, or whatever, you know, that, that if they're not seeing deer move, that means the rut's not happening. Mm -hmm. But the truth is it's happening. Mm -hmm. Deers, uh, the doe are, does are still getting bred. The bugs are, you know, they're coming into estrus regardless of what the weather does. Um, and so it's, the rut is happening, whether you think it is or not, whether you observed it or not. And people will say, well, I, I just didn't see much this year, but you know what, that has, uh, it has to do with where you choose chose to hunt. It has mm -hmm. to do with your hunting pressure. It has to do with a lot of factors that you know are in your control. You could have been uh, causing yourself to not see many deer. It doesn't necessarily mean the you know deer weren't breeding, but the fact is year in year out when we look at the science, look at the data, the does are getting bred around the same time. So I would say that look at your evidence like your trail cameras. You know, those times of day, those those days when you're seeing, um, you know, adult and mature bucks moving during daylight, times when you've seen that in the past yourself with your own eyes, you know, remember those days and pay attention to that because they're pretty much going to be consistent in the same spot year to year. Obviously, the timing of the rut varies regionally and state to state and, and uh, but where you hunt, that locale where you hunt, just like for me. Uh, where I hunt on my family's land, it's pretty much going to be the same time every single year you can bank on that. Because, you know, the timing of the rut has to do with putting fawns on the ground at the right time the next spring for them to receive high quality uh, nutrition from their mother and her milk and then the forage that they're going to be weaned on. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with the weather during November. That that has nothing to do with deer survival. Deer aren't going to change the time they breed based on what the temperature was, um, you know, in October, November when they're supposed to be breeding. It's all about putting fawns on the ground at the right time. And that's why does are going to come into estrus at the same time in a certain location pretty much every year. You're going to have some that come in early. You're going to have some that come in late. But that peak of breeding, when the most does are in estrus and those mature bugs are most likely to show up in daylight, you know, that's going to be the same pretty much year in, year out. Preach it. I love it. <laughs> I've talked about it, but maybe, you know, maybe people will take it from you instead of, you know, if they don't listen to me. So I just had to let you, I had to let you say it. Um, and, you know, one thing I think that people or, or, you know, why people might think that, you know, early, late, whatever is, I think people would be amazed at how short of a distance you have to go to get those kind of different dose structures and, you know, that kind of come into estrus at different times. And I, I just kind of got lucky and got to learn this firsthand because we had one property that I'd been hunting for, you know, seven, eight years. Um, and we ended up selling that property and buying a different property that was just about 30 miles away. Um, but yeah, the, the, the timing of the rut, the peak estrus was about two weeks earlier, just going 30 miles. Um, and it, we've been on that property now for five or six years and, and it's held true. Um, and so, you know, when this person's buddy was like, yeah, you know, saw a big 10 point, you know, chasing or whatever. And, and this guy said, you know, I'm not seeing anything. It, you know, it could very well just be that the, the does just come in a, at a little bit different time, but they're still going to come in at the same time every year. Like you said. Yep. It's very consistent and you can, you can bank on it. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, pay attention to those trail cameras. Cause you know, you can get a lot of information from, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's the term, uh, data year after year, historic data. Yeah. There's all kinds of indicators, not only what you see and observe, but, you know, pay attention to when, you know, you're hearing, you know, your neighbors, 
so and so, you know, you all you hear, you know, people tell you, you see it on Facebook or you get a text, so and so killed a big buck. Uh, pay attention to those dates when they happen. Certainly, mm-hmm. some are going to be outliers early and late, but there's going to be that week every year when the big bucks drop um, or when, you know, deer vehicle collisions start peaking. When you're mm-hmm. seeing a whole bunch of deer in the ditch, that means, you know, the science is shown there that the peak of deer vehicle collisions uh, concurs, occurs at the same time as the peak in deer breeding. Um, which makes sense. So there's lots of little, you know, cues that we can look at. And if you make note of that and record it, you're going to start seeing a pattern every year that, that shows you. You know, for us on our family's land in southeast Georgia, the coastal Georgia rut is kind of early. Mm-hmm. Uh, our peak is right around Halloween. Mm-hmm. So that last week of October to the first week of November is, you know, really, really the, the, the best time. Mm-hmm. We've killed adult bucks and mature bucks before that and after that too it's not to say that you don't see them and you know particularly one of the patterns i really like post rut is you know bucks have been pressured all year if and they the rut's over they're hungry now they start to feed again they they really spent time chasing does over the last few weeks and they didn't eat much but now the testosterone has dropped and they're interested in food again if you've got a food plot or a food source that has not been pressured a lot through the middle of the season, post rut, that is a great place to encounter a mature buck. So mm-hmm. it's not that you can't kill them. It's just that if you're going to do a rutcation and ask for time off work and, you know, invest in this, you want it to be the time that those bucks are most likely to show themselves and be on the move, moving the most based on the studies we've seen. And that's going to be that, you know, week to two weeks when the, the most does are in estrus. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Lindsay, I'm eating it up. Um, you, you have another article that I want to make sure we have time to touch on, but before we move on any other last minute, uh, rutcation tips, tricks, uh, things you've learned before we move on. You know, just, I covered some of the basics we all know, like, you know, making sure you're absolutely scent free or as scent free as you can be. I don't believe we can be hundred percent scent free. You just can't do that. There's no such thing, mm-hmm. but you can certainly minimize, you know, washing your boots, not walking, you know, around the gas station with the boots you're going to hunt in, um, you know, only entering the woods in, in clothes you've, you've, you know, that are clean, you just wash them. And when you come home, you're not wearing those around camp and going hunting again. So, you know, minimizing your scent, minimizing your noise. It's things, you know, one of the things I pointed out when you're sitting there in camp and you're there all week, there's going to be temptations to go out in the middle of the day and go move a trail camera or hang a new stand or, you know, do some scouting or whatever. And I I just said, you know, looking at the science, you've really got to resist that if you want to make a rutcation work. That's just adding more evidence of your presence, noises, scents, sights, sounds, and things in the woods. Even if you're you know, riding a four-wheeler to go check a camera and you're not actually hunting, it doesn't matter. That's activity that's out of the normal. And those are the cues that deer use to keep themselves from dying. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that was the other thing I said was, I'm going to make sure I don't give in to those uh, temptations to go back during the middle of the day and, you know, do some work out there where I'm supposed to be hunting. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. So, so for those of you like myself who haven't been able to take that nice long week off, maybe don't fret. Maybe it's not quite as big a deal as you, as you think. Maybe those long weekends are, are the way to go. So. No, that's exactly right, John. Based, that's what I said, you know, based on the science, what I said in this article, the truth is um, the science tells us that the best way to hunt deer is to go out there and hit them for a day, maybe two, and then go home, leave the woods and give them a week to cool down. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 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 Well, um, do you mind if we move on to this, this next topic? No, let's do it. All right. Yeah. When, so this actually, I think this article came out between the time I had talked to you about coming on the show and everything, and, and I couldn't resist the urge. Um, y'all recently put out an article about wild pigs and basically just how good they are at multiplying. And so um, I'd love to just turn you loose on it. Um, You know, Oklahoma is obviously a a crazy hog state. I'm in southeastern Oklahoma, right on the Red River. So we're right in the thick of it. Um, I actually just had some guys, some fellow podcasters down about two weeks ago to do some hog hunting and and uh, it was it was almost sickening, you know, hunting multiple days in a row and how many pigs we saw and and uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I just want to turn you loose on this on this new research that came out. 
Yeah, this just came across uh, my inbox, you know, a few weeks ago when the study got published uh, here recently. It was a University of Georgia study uh, done on the Savannah River site in South Carolina, which is a huge Department of Energy facility, lots of woods and lots of game, and they got a feral hog problem. And uh, the University of Georgia has been studying those pigs for a number of years, looking at different things. And this new study was done by Sarah Chin. She earned her PhD with this study. So she's now a doctor. And, and it did a lot of things that had never been done before with pigs, where they were uh, trapping uh, sows, collaring them, you know, even doing ultrasounds on them to see if they were pregnant, releasing them, tracking them, and then going in when they thought they had given birth and even capturing and tagging some of the piglets to study piglet survival and follow them. So it, they did some things that just had not never really been done with feral hogs before. Now, we knew before this that, that wild pigs are extremely productive and very difficult to keep up with if you're trying to control them. You know, I've heard it said before that you got to kill, you know, if you're trying to control feral pigs, you've got to kill half to three quarters of more of uh, the population each year. And most of that's gotta be females if you want to, to control them. And it's true, they just are extremely productive. But what Sarah found was, you know, dialing in on some of the details of what we suspect have suspected for so long, which is a female wild pig, not only can begin breeding at a, an extremely young age, something like three to, to five to six months, you know, even as young as maybe a three to four month old sow and uh, breed. Mm. And then, you know, six months later, they're producing more piglets and they can begin breeding again. It's just the, the factors here are pretty incredible when you, particularly when you compare them to something like a whitetail. You know, pigs can breed any time of year all year long. And deer, of course, can't do that. They just do it once a year. Um, if a this was one thing I didn't know, but if a, if a wild pig, let's say she gives birth to a litter and a, and a coyote gets those or some other predator gets that litter, within a couple of weeks, she will breed again and go back in estrus and breed again to compensate for having lost that litter. Of course, a doe can't do that. Coyote gets her fawns. It's going to be next year before she breeds again, you know, so or the, the following fall. So, you know, then we're talking about what litter size. You know, you're talking about up to 12 piglets in a litter. The average is something like, you know, six to eight per litter, but as many as 12. So just this rapid fire reproduction by young animals that start young, crank out a lot of piglets, you know, turn around and do it again just as quickly as, as they can. Even, even the embryos develop faster than a whitetail. You know, a whitetail gestation is about 200 days. Feral pigs do it in 115 days. So the turnaround is just so fast. A sow can produce, you know, basically a, a two litters every year and a half and just keep cranking them out. That's, that's the kind of, that's what we're up against when it comes to trying to, trying to control pigs. And it and explains why, you know, we cannot control them with hunting. Mm -hmm. Shooting a few pigs out of your deer stand in fall is not controlling feral pigs. It's just, it, they're mm -hmm. too productive for that. To make a difference, there's too many left that just continue breeding. You know, you've got to do trapping. That's the, really the only method that has shown to be effective. And you've got to do what they call pole sounder removal, which, you know, a sounder is the name for these family groups of several sows and their offspring, maybe a few young boars that hang out together. Um, You've got to get that whole group using the trap. And before you arm the trap and drop it on them or set it, make sure every single pig in that group is comfortable going in there. Then you set it and you get the entire sounder. That can make a difference if you do that two or three times. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this study was definitely an eye opener and just confirmed, you know, what we've known that pigs are far too reproductive for us to control them by shooting a few with guns and bows. Right. Yeah. And yeah, just the, the staggering numbers you were talking about, you know, the, how young they can breed, how quickly they can breed. I think it mentioned one sow that had three litters in a year and a half. Um, 
And, you know, one thing you mentioned when you're talking was, uh, you know, like, let's say a coyote comes by and takes out the litter. That was another thing in the articles that doesn't really happen either. They, you know, they haven't found coyotes or really any predator for these animals other than us. Um, and, and yeah, so like I, I kind of mentioned before we started recording, you know, for for somebody who has to deal with wild pigs, you know, all the time, uh, you know, my family uh, has a ranch, uh, you know, uh, producing cattle ranch and so we have to deal with them both in hunting and you know financially with the ranch and everything um it was it was a little bit of a depressing article um there were some <laughs> there were some good stuff at the end as far as you know the removal and and tips on you know which hogs to take out because you know myself included and i think most people if they see a group of, of pigs come in they're looking for the biggest boar with the biggest teeth and that's the one they're wanting to shoot but um according to this article you need to be looking for the biggest sow because most likely she's going to be one of the top producers um so there were some good tips but like i said it was it was also a little gut-wrenching just you know I, we knew the problem was bad but i think this really uh orchestrated how bad it is yeah and, you know, the other eye opener for me that Sarah told me about that I didn't really realize before is if you look at the original European boar, which is the, the wild animal that all these domestic pigs came from. That's, you know, it, that's where people first took that animal and domesticated it and then began breeding it to produce different, you know, varieties and strains of pigs that we know now is, you know, that the farm animal. Um, that European boar, the original animal, does not reproduce like this. It is mm -hmm. more like a whitetail in terms of its capability of producing offspring. We're the ones who made this animal, this crazy, you know, breeding wild pig. We gave it those powers through our selective breeding, looking, you know, selecting these animals so that we could produce a farm pig that produced a lot of offspring, you know, produced that would breed more than once a year that would go back into estrus if they lost its litter, et cetera. You know, we gave them these powers and now they have escaped hybridized, sometimes uh, re-hybridizing with European boars that have also been put out there. And it's just a huge mess. And we made it. I never realized that this is really our fault. There's no, there's no wild animal in nature that produces like this. It, this is, this is a human produced problem. Yeah, little monsters, and and we're continuing to feed it. Not only you know, just still having you know a, a market for pigs and pork and everything, but you know, Oklahoma's a bait state, and so there are who knows how many deer feeders out there running every fall, just feeding these suckers, you know, constantly, and and helping them just get healthier and stronger, and being able to re uh, reproduce even more and faster. So, um, yes, yeah, it, exactly. it, it's a bad it's a bad problem. Yeah. Georgia's a baiting state too. And that was, you know, when we legalized it, that was one of the reasons conservation groups urged the legislature not to do it was um, that, you know, you're feeding a lot of non-target animals, not just hogs, but nest predators like raccoons and possums. And, um, but yeah, that, that corn that's on the ground out there during deer season, a lot of that in Southern states where there are hog problems, a lot of that corn ends up inside a hog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, I, I had a few guys down a few weeks ago, and one guy was from Ohio, one from Michigan, and one from Missouri, and so, you know, they were coming down extremely excited about, you know, hunting the hogs and everything. I was more than uh, happy to let them come down and shoot them, but it, it was it was really cool kind of talking with those guys and comparing, and because uh, we were talking about, you know, deer hunting and stuff and the different ways we do it and strategies and everything, and, and one thing that kind of you know, surprised them was that, you know, I would never dream of planting like a, a corn food plot because, you know, as soon as I put that corn in the ground, the hogs are just going to come eat it before it has time <laughs> to sprout. And so, you know, I'm just going to be wasting my money and that, you know, that had just never even occurred to them. Um, and so just, yeah, even just the way it affects hunting, you know, obviously a, a hog's going to push a deer off of a, off of a deer feeder and, and just about anything off of a deer feeder. And, and then they're going to start coming at night and you don't want to wake up at 2am and go shoot them. And, and you don't want to scare, you know, be shooting stuff around your, your bait sites anyway. And yeah, just, just the headache. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of grim, you know, the whole, what do you do is a, is a question that I'm still waiting to hear a good answer to. You know, you're, you're a perfect example, just like me, because we have hogs where we hunt, um, of, you know, people who have experienced this. People who have not often say, you know, that's kind of cool. I'd like to kind of have this bonus animal out there in the woods that I could hunt and, you know, 
smoke some barbecue and mm-hmm. um, enjoy that. But the the people like you and I can tell them, no, if you don't have this animal, be happy. You do not want it out there. The damage that they cause, the amount of competition that they have against whitetails when it comes to food sources, not just acorns and persimmons and fruit and things like that. But, you know, the new diet studies on hogs are showing that for most of the year, their diet is very much like a whitetail's. They eat a lot of plants. They're rooting up small plants and forbs. These are the same things that deer eat also. So the level of competition between pigs and deer is huge. And that affects the nutrition and productivity of your deer herd. It affects your ability to hunt deer because, you know, uh, if you're, you're, for example, trying to find a good oak tree to hunt under and, and hunt some deer, but the hogs are there first. I've seen mm-hmm. that happen. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an animal that if you don't have it, you do not want it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we definitely agree on that one. Well, Lindsay, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, we've, we've covered a little bit of everything from how awesome Oklahoma deer hunting is to rutcations <laughs> to pigs. Um, is there, is there anything else before I, before I let you go? I definitely want to give you a chance to, to shout out your organization and, and your social media and all that good stuff, but anything we missed? No, I can't think so. I appreciate you having me on. I enjoyed talking about it. I, I enjoy, you know, thank you for, for mentioning the rutcation article. Mm-hmm. I'll be writing more uh, after my third try here and, and letting folks know how it goes, whether it works out or whether I'm going back to, you know, just being a, a hit and run weekend hunter. We'll mm-hmm. see. But, um, but yeah, thank you for the opportunity to come on and, and speak to your listeners and share the National Deer Association with them. You know, your listeners that are deer hunters, if they don't know who we are, I encourage them to find out. We're a, we're a nonprofit. We do uh, work, mission work for whitetails and for deer hunters. The easiest way for them to learn more about us is sign up for our free weekly e-newsletter. It comes out every week and it's free in your email inbox. And you can just go to our website at deerassociation.com slash newsletter and sign up today free. Uh, it comes out every Thursday morning, so another one will be going out uh, tomorrow. We're, we're speaking on a Wednesday night, so new edition comes out every Thursday morning. Sign up free. You'll you'll learn some of our deer content and hunting material, but also get to see our mission work, what we do as an organization, and uh, hopefully consider supporting us as a nonprofit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Guys, I can tell you firsthand, it's worth the follow. And, and Lindsay, man, I just can't thank you enough once again for coming on and, uh, and thank you for the, the association and everything that they do for us. Thank you, John. It's been fun talking to you. I enjoyed it. And, um, and I'm honored to be on the show. All right, folks, there it is. Thank you, Lindsay, for coming on. That was awesome. We covered a lot in that hour, so I hope you guys are paying attention. And and again, a huge shout-out to Lindsay. One thing that I definitely wanted to kind of go back and touch on was the stuff he mentioned at the beginning, just kind of with the state of our deer herd and and where the numbers are at because – you know, we cut, we did, I did several episodes on all the current legislation with air bows and crossbows. And we've talked a lot about, you know, non-resident hunters and one buck versus two buck and, and all this stuff. And I just feel like it's important to kind of take a step back and realize that, you know, what we have in place right now is working. Uh, like he mentioned, you know, the, the hunter success, the the age structure the percent of you know the the total number of bucks taken everything he just mentioned is a positive and i feel like we've been very focused on the negative on this podcast lately um and i apologize for that but you know it's just there's a lot of stuff going on i want to make sure everybody is is up to date on it and aware of it but i do think it's important to step back and look at our success look at where we're at right now and all the great things um and again, I, I am very open about it. I I love the two buck limit. Selfishly, it, it works for me. Um, you know, I, I'm in a situation where I can typically take advantage of it. Uh, again, I think it's a great tool to use to get out management bucks that aren't going to be good in the future. Uh, maybe that's me being selfish. But again, you know, just looking at the numbers, like he mentioned, it seems like what we have in place is working and I don't see a need to change it. So just, just interjecting that. I know, I know several people out there probably disagree with me and I, and I understand, I understand both sides of the arguments. Um, but like I said, it's hard to argue with the results that we're seeing right now. So 
If you have any questions or concerns or comments or thoughts about this episode, please, please reach out to me. Um, Instagram is definitely the best way, uh, Oklahoma Outdoors Podcast. I'm also on Facebook. I'm just not very active. And I haven't thrown out my email in quite a while. So it is the letters OK Outdoors Podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget the S on outdoors. OK Outdoors Podcast at gmail.com. So if you need another way to get a hold of me, there you have it. There's my email. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, supporting this podcast. I apologize, you know, the last two weeks, those episodes were probably probably a little rough audio-wise. Um, I was recording them in our Airbnb with a, my travel microphone, just not quite as nice. But I'm back home, no travel plans anytime soon, so we're going to have some good quality content coming up. Like I said, most likely next week we'll do kind of a summation of my turkey season, even though turkey season won't quite be over and then who knows where we're going to go after that. So lots of cool stuff, exciting stuff coming up. Thank you guys for supporting this podcast. And until next week, I will see you guys right back here on the Oklahoma Outdoors podcast. You have the right to the best wireless service. Bravado Wireless provides the best mobile wireless, high-speed internet, latest devices, and customer service at prices you feel good about. Bravado Wireless strives to put these values first and offer you the best wireless service available. See what they have to offer at bravadowireless.com or one of their retail locations in eastern Oklahoma. Let Bravado Wireless connect you to your family, friends, and business partners all over the world. Bravado Wireless, the power of connection.